We're going to be reading Genesis 47, um, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 12, and then skipping over to verses 27 to 31. So I'll, I'll keep you right as we go. This is the Word of God. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. And skip over the page to, to verse 27. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were faithful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Amen. Um, folks, keep your Bibles open there at... Uh, page 53 at chapter 47 of Genesis, if you would. We didn't get to read the whole chapter, but we are going to be looking at it all, so uh, part of what we'll be thinking about this morning we, we haven't quite read yet. I just want to add my welcome to the, the families who are here with us today for the baptisms. Uh, lovely to have you with us um, here, here at Kirkpatrick. It's a, a joy for us to have your families here. Thank you for lending them to us or whatever it is you've done. Um, it's good. Folks, that was a, a beautiful thing you did a moment ago. We do it here oftentimes, so you maybe didn't notice. Uh, sometimes the great things we do, if we do them regularly, they, they lose a little bit of their, their impact for us. 
I'm talking about that moment when you sang the ironic blessing over these five wee ones and their families. It is a beautiful thing to bless people in God's name. Among other things, that's uh, something we're going to be thinking about here today. I wasn't here last Sunday, I was at Clarewood, but I got a chance to listen to Monty's podcast and, and reflect a little bit on chapter 46, the chapter we were looking at together last week. And we saw there how God brought Jacob and his family out of Canaan uh, into Goshen, uh, a sort of a, an area of Egypt where they, they would maybe have a bit of space around themselves. Uh, we had a sense there as we reflected on that 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 maybe the, this young family, these, these first generations of the people of God, they were struggling to live faithfully and well in, in Canaan. Um, so w- there's a sense in which God brought them to a place where they could, could grow a few generations uh, and become more the distinctive people of God that he wanted them to be. So all of that's going on in chapter 46. And, and as we get to the early chap- verses of chapter 47, we see that that plan's working out. They're, they've arrived in Egypt, in Goshen, and we're going to move on now into chapter 47. And as I say, we're going to notice three things in this chapter. Joseph's work, Jacob's faith, and then finally we're going to think for a few moments together about blessing. So first of all, Joseph's work. This is the part of the chapter we didn't read, so maybe you'll want to keep an eye on the the text as I uh, lead us and guide us through this. Verses 13 to 26. This stuff, um, even if you cast your eyes down, read it while I'm, I'm talking, th- this stuff as I've engaged with it over the years, it seemed a little ambiguous to me. I couldn't work out whether this is a good part of the Joseph story or a bad part. Is Joseph doing well here or is he doing badly? On the one hand, yeah, this question, is he doing badly here? We've hardly had a bad word to say about Joseph so far in in chapters of narrative, in in decades of his life. We're now into the last seven years of this famine, uh, or or the seven years of famine. We're into the last years of of those seven. And it's a time when things in Egypt are, are hard. We can imagine that easily. But it seems here that Joseph deliberately brings these these people of Egypt under complete subjection to Pharaoh. Look at verse 21. Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Folks, if that's the case, then we can only, any honest reading of Scripture means that we can only say that that Joseph's not at his best here, that he's acting out of character. We can only wish that he had stayed sensitive to God, that he had demonstrated the same heart for God that we'd seen earlier in the story, that he hadn't allowed the the power uh, that he now has to corrupt him. Uh, We wish that he'd acted differently. On the other hand, as I've come back to this text this time, um, and I've read a wee bit around it, I'm just not sure that that's that's the, the full picture. I've been wondering whether Joseph's maybe done better than I'd first imagined uh, on that reading of the text. Four things that maybe have helped readjust my thinking. The first thing, when you read Joseph's scheme, 
what, read his economic policy, I guess. What you discover is that even after the people have sold their land, their livestock, and themselves to Pharaoh, the actual implications of it are quite simple. It's a 20% income tax. People are going to be taxed at 20%. Uh, they're going to pay over 20% of their produce to Pharaoh. So that compares pretty favorably with 33% under the Syrians, 50% under Arabs, and the Persians who taxed their peasants at 75%, those ancient regimes that we know of, that compares pretty favorably. Compares pretty favorably for us too, doesn't it? 20%, no NIC, no higher rate. Um, we'd take that, wouldn't we? So maybe it's not as bad as it first seems. Another thing that, that we maybe don't see in the text here, Joseph has broken the power of an old aristocracy in Egypt at this time. Egyptologists tell us that there was a, a powerful and ruthless ruling class that, that really subjected all of the people uh, in Egypt to a tyrannical rule. And actually, Joseph's step here to bring people in the space of four or five years out from under that in a sort of a bloodless revolution and to bring them to a point where, yes, they're taxed, but they're, they're equals and they stand shoulder to shoulder under Pharaoh. It's maybe not such a, a bad outcome as, as we at first imagine. Third thing, Joseph's improved the infrastructure here. And, and this is a wee thing that we, we don't see in the, the NIV translation, but we do get a wee tip from the footnotes. If you look again at verse 21, it says there that Joseph reduced the people to servitude. And there's a, a wee letter C there, a wee footnote. If you follow that footnote down you'll see, uh, to the bottom of the page, you'll see there that it says that we're taking the text there from the Samaritan Pentateuch or the Septuagint, see also the Vulgate. Don't worry too much about the detail of that, but the NIV guys are telling us here that at this point in the text, they're following some ancient Bible translations. The Masoretic text, the original Hebrew reads differently, and they tell us in the footnote how it reads. It says there that Joseph moved people into cities. That's a slightly different translation. Even if he uh, exerted some influence in moving them, it's probably not hard to imagine why he would have done that. If there's been a period of uh, the, the bumper crops, if they've put the bumper crops into huge grain houses in, in the cities and towns, then it makes sense that you would bring the people close to where the grain is. This is a, a distribution issue. He's built a healthy and appropriate infrastructure for his times. And a fourth thing that persuades me, probably the most persuasive thing for me finally, that Joseph may have been acting well at this point. Sometimes we say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Well, maybe the, the proof of an economic policy is in the population and their response. If you look at verse 25, the people of Egypt tell us how... Joseph's done for them. They say, you have saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So it's hard to tell. Did he do well? Did he not do well? I don't know if we'll ever definitively know the answer to that. 
when it comes to, to preaching this or asking you to reflect on it into your life, I'm going to do something I can't remember ever doing before. I'm going to cover both bases. Is that all right? I'm going to pray as if he's done badly, or, or preach as if he's done badly and as if he's done well, because truth is, both are possibilities for, for Joseph and for us. Maybe he's done badly. Maybe Joseph's gone off the boil. Years of faithful living when he was a young man in his family or when he was a young man in Potiphar's household or a young man, a slave. Maybe Joseph has discovered what other people have discovered along the way. It's sometimes easier to follow Jesus Christ when you're on the underside of things than when you're on top. It's easier to follow Jesus when you've loads of reasons to be desperate for his spirit's presence in your life. And it's harder when you feel like the world's your oyster and everyone answers to you. Maybe he has been corrupted by power like so many before him. Maybe he's gone off the boil. What about you? A lot of us here in communities like this, are, we're, we're in a similar position. We, we've maybe got an education, we've got well qualified, we've got a, a, a decent job, and before you know it, we're, we're managing things and we're in charge of things. We're, we're moving towards the... How's that gone for you? If you compare this you today with the you of 10 and 20 years ago, what's it done to you? Somebody going off the boil? Somebody allowed life to take you away from Jesus? It's possible, isn't it? Let's just hear that today and, and reflect on it and see if the Lord has something for us. The other possibility, Joseph's done well. And if that's the case, then this part of the story just, just follows on. Do you remember that part we did a few weeks ago where he was lifted out of prison and promoted very quickly and he became uh, effectively the prime minister of Egypt? We've seen Joseph now do some brilliant work today, possibly. Maybe he has broken a, a political stranglehold. Maybe he has established new infrastructures. Maybe we've seen him build something like a forerunner of a welfare state where people are taxed a little bit, but everybody's taken care of. And we've seen people immensely grateful to him for changing their lives. Maybe that's all happened. What about that? Wouldn't that be brilliant? Wouldn't it be brilliant if people in your workplace, they, they may not frame it in those terms, they may not say, you've saved my life, but they may say, you've changed my life. My life's better because God put you in it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If our family and our friends our neighbors and our colleagues, 
we're able to be grateful to God. People who don't even know Jesus finding themselves grateful that you're in their life. I think that's possible. A lovely possibility. Folks, we've talked there for a few moments about Joseph's work. In the final verses of the chapter, beginning at verse 28, we see, this This will be shorter, we see what kind of a, a man Jacob has become. We've actually reached the end of Jacob's life. You, you may not have noticed that or picked it up. He's um, reached the ripe old age of 147. By the way, there's a lovely wee thing here. 17 years he's lived in Egypt, okay? He lived in Canaan with his dearly loved son Joseph for how long? 17 years before he was taken from him at the start of the story. Now we have the two of them reunited in Egypt this time for another 17 years. It's like the Lord just turning the circle and closing it off beautifully. So we have this old man. He's 147 years old. He's on his deathbed pretty much and he calls for his son Joseph. And I don't know, in the, in the biblical story, when somebody speaks from their deathbed, you listen to what they say. It always matters. It tells us who they are, what's important to them. And, and look, verse 29, what's important to Jacob. If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you'll show me kindness and faithfulness. Don't bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. Makes Joseph swear it, and then he worships God. Seventeen years ago, Jacob left a Canaan where they'd been struggling to put food on the table. His memories of Canaan in those last years will have been very difficult. He's come down now into the wealthiest empire in the world, He's been given a privileged corner of that kingdom for himself and his family. He's Joseph's dad. Things have gone all right for Jacob in Egypt, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess his pension plan came in well, and it all was pretty good. What does he do? What's in his heart as he comes to the end of his life? Is it the wealth and the prosperity that he and his family have built around him in Egypt? We're staying put here. Things have gone well for us. Prosperity? No. This is Jacob. Don't forget, all his life he's run after wealth. Do you remember in the, the Laban stories uh, earlier on? He, he's always wanted stuff. But here we have him as an old guy and he doesn't care anymore about the prosperity. It's the promise of God that matters. Forget prosperity if I can still have the promise. Take me back to Canaan. Folks, I, I wonder, I, I don't know what it's going to be like to live those last years and months and days. I don't know what will be in my heart. The only thing I, I do have some certainty about is that every day I'm living now prepares me for the guy I'll be at the end. 
the heart that I'll have then is the one that I'm cultivating today. The things that matter to me then will matter because they've mattered to me now. Who am I becoming? Will it be faith in the promises of God at the end? We're nearly done. We've talked about work, faith, for a few moments, blessing. Don't want you to miss this. It's very gentle in here, but, but I love it. Chapters, uh, verses 7 to 10, if you have a look. We did read them. Joseph brings his old dad, Jacob, to meet his boss, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Mr. Big, on the world stage. And it's quite ironic, really, because what you get is this humble old shepherd before this world superpower, and he starts blessing Pharaoh. It's kind of, I don't know, it might be a bit awkward. It might be a bit like if you introduced your your parent to the, the queen uh, and your parents started to be like all over the queen, chatting away, telling her who's who and what's what, you know. You'd, you'd be, you know, is this a moment, a se- senior moment, the, the, the dementia's kicking in? It has a wee bit of that feel to it. This 130-year-old shepherd, like what does he smell like? He's been looking after sheep for 130 years in a land where people don't wash and he's coming down to meet Pharaoh and he's blessing him. It's ironic. Pharaoh is the royal person in the eyes of the world, but Jacob is the royal person in the eyes of God. Do you remember what God had said to him whenever he had wrestled with the angel that night with God at Peniel? Your name will no longer be Jacob, you'll be Israel because you've struggled with God and with men and you've overcome. This is a special, special man because the Lord has chosen to put his name and his blessing on him. This unkempt old shepherd, he's not the inferior party here. He's the son of a king, the king, the king of kings. So whenever Jacob blesses Pharaoh, it's entirely appropriate. It's so natural here in the text, very spontaneous. There's not a big fuss made of it. It, you, You get this sense that he's unawed by the splendor, by the the strangeness of everything that's going on around him, Jacob just breaks the silence and pronounces this blessing on Pharaoh. He does it twice. If you think he's done it by accident, he does it when he arrives and he does it again when he leaves. Folks, I think this is a a significant moment that we could easily lose as we fly through. There's a sign here for me that Jacob has understood his identity. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a carrier of God's promise. Do you remember what it was that God said to Abram when he first called him? He told him why he'd called him, what he wanted him and his family to do. Genesis 12, he says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless all who bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is who we are. 
Abram's descendants have to be a blessing to the world. Jacob's doing his work when he comes here to bless Pharaoh. Maybe you say, well, that, that's okay. I understand that we're to be people of blessing, but, but this, this, you know, he's blessing Pharaoh, the sun king, uh, a representation of pagan deity who evoked worship from his subjects. Is that okay? Can the people of God be going around blessing the likes of Pharaoh? I wonder what you think. Can we bless people who are way outside the kingdom of God? Well, those of us who are paying attention to the story, who are reading the whole story, will discover, maybe to our surprise, that the answer is yes. Later in the Old Testament, we have the prophet Jeremiah. Some of us have been reading the book of Jeremiah together. And he uh, brings God's word to the people in Babylon. And he tells them famously, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper too. Wow. Pray for those who hold you captive. Pray for Babylon. Pray for them. Paul says something similar in the first letter to Timothy. He urges Timothy, these communities that you lead, Timothy, make sure that they're a place where we offer requests, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings for everyone. Not just those who live under the reign of Jesus Christ. There's no one off limits for you and I to bless in the name of God. Tell me this, can you imagine a person in your life at the moment who needs someone to come alongside them in spiritual power and pray God's blessing on them? Can you imagine that person? Can you think of one? I can think of lots, just at the moment. We need to be clear here. It's not that we ourselves have an awful lot to offer people. What we offer them is God, the unmerited favor of God, the blessings which God, who's rich beyond measure, gives to all and no sorrow with them. Folks, wouldn't it be great if we were renowned throughout Ballyhackamore and Belfast and Northern Ireland as blessers of people? I don't know, is that what people think of Christians in Belfast today? Blessers? I don't know. Not sure. Wouldn't it be great if this got to be our reputation carriers of God's blessing to any and every person. Wouldn't it be great if we learned to approach people always with that desire? Jacob's got it. Doesn't come to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, stop worshiping your pagan sun gods. And No, he starts with a blessing. 
folks, um, as your minister here, I was thinking about this a little bit. Um, I'm nearly done here, but um, I suppose as a minister, you learn patterns of speech. There's certain ways you speak. It's a bit like any other job. If you think of your job, you'll have phrases that you use or, or a vocabulary. I'm, I'm the same here. And even if you're the kind of person, I, I try to live a cliche-free life. I try to live with words that are the right words for that moment and that situation and that person rather than just arriving with a bag of cliches and unloading them. But even then, you do find yourself using phrases, adopting language. There's a, a phrase that I've noticed has crept into my language the last couple of years that I don't remember using before. Often when I finish a conversation or I say goodbye to somebody, I'll finish by looking them in the eye and saying, God bless you. I would never have done that until a couple of years ago. It sounded cliched to me. It sounded far too twee, far too vicar of Dibley, and not too... Of John Ames, the fictional congregational pastor from Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, to thank for this, this old guy loved blessing people. At one point in the novel, he explains what he thinks is going on when we bless someone. He says, there's a reality in blessing. It doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it. And there is power in that. On another occasion, he's describing a wonderful time that he's had at the bedside of an older lady. He's done that thing that ministers do, spending time with people towards the end of their lives. He describes this old lady and he simply says, these old saints bless us every chance they get. And towards the end of the novel, if, towards the climax, if, if this beautiful novel has a, a climax, John Ames, he's encountering sort of the black sheep of the story, guy who's about to leave town, and Pastor John wants to leave one last word with him. The thing I would like to do, actually, he says, is to bless you. And he repeats the ironic blessing on a park bench waiting for the bus over this young man who's been judged by all. And he says, nothing could be more beautiful than that or more expressive of my feelings or more sufficient. And then reflecting on what he's just done, John Ames says, I'd have gone through seminary and ordination and all the years intervening for that one What a privilege to bless someone in the name of God. So there it is, folks. I found myself using this phrase. Maybe you've heard me say it. Maybe I've used it and it's been for you. Here's what I mean, by the way. I, I don't know, phrases like that, what do they mean? Here's what I mean by that when I say it. I mean, every one of the good things that God has for you, I wish them for you. Every one. 
I want you to live your life with nothing missing of the goodness of God. I want you to know the Father who created you and who looks on you in love. I want you to know Jesus Christ who came and gave his life on a cross that you might live. I want you to know him as your savior and as your friend. I want you to know his spirit not as an idea, something to talk about, a theological concept, but as your life's energy indwelling you, the one who makes you tick. That's what I want for you, each one of you, every last one of you. God bless you. God bless you and you. God bless you. All the good things of God for you. I don't get to talk to each of you each week, so I'm doing it now. Is that all right? God bless you. If you look me in the eye, you get more of the blessing. That's how it works. <laughs> God bless you. All the good things of God for you today and into the future. God bless you.